for future economic trends. This is BizTalk. Hello and welcome to this special edition of BizTalk. I'm Guanxing in Beijing. The recent debt limit debate in the U.S. has raised serious concerns about fiscal sustainability and stability of the financial system. While a default was averted, the protracted political brinkmanship has likely dented confidence in the safety of U.S. Treasuries as a risk-free asset anchoring global markets. At the same time, surging U.S. debt levels pose risks to the dollar and inflation outlook. Has confidence in the U.S. Treasuries being impaired? What are the implications for the global economy? Joining me today are two distinguished guests, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, one of the world's leading experts on economics and global development, director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, and a senior advisor to the UN. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure Thank to you. have you with us. Thank you so much. And Professor Li Daogui, a leading Chinese economist, director of the Academic Center for Chinese Economic Practice and Thinking at the Tsinghua University, and he's also a policy advisor to the Chinese government. Welcome to the show, Professor Li. It's my pleasure. So the U.S. narrowly averted a historic default before the June 5th deadline. The world economy has also been spared a huge shock. But has the debt deal substantively addressed the risks to the U.S. fiscal sustainability or simply kicked the can down the road? Uh, Professor Sachs, as one of the world's foremost experts on economics and crisis prevention, what is your assessment of the deal? This is more kicking the can down the road. Uh, <laughs> nothing fundamental was settled. There was a lot of theatrics in this, uh, kind of a political show because uh, there really wasn't going to be a default. Uh, in fact, even the political divide between the Republicans and the Democrats is exaggerated. Mm. The basic problem in the United States is, well, the rich people don't want to pay taxes. The companies don't want to pay taxes. The U.S. government wants to spend a huge amount on wars and military. And uh, this has been going on for quite a long time. So uh, because of low taxes, uh, high military spending, we have a debt that continues to rise as a proportion of the national income. It was about 35% of our national income back in the year 2000. Now it's 95% of our national income. It will be well above 100% of our national income within a decade. And our political system is not addressing this at all. It's making minor adjustments, but there was no debate on taxes at all because neither political party wants to uh, do anything about taxes. There was really no recognition of the need for more social spending, even though we have a social crisis in the United States and both political parties wanted to spend more on the military. So this is kicking the can down the road with a lot of theatrics around it. Well, as you mentioned, the uh, military spending, which is also a concern for China because it caps non-military spending but maintains a very high defense budget, which is larger than the next 10 countries combined. And we know uh, one of the key objectives of the Pentagon is to deter China. How do you make sense of it? Well, uh, the United States is spending three times what China spends on the military, and as you say, more than the next 10 countries combined. 
I think it's a waste of money. I think if the U.S. and China sat down and negotiated over arms control, we would save a lot of money and be much better for the whole world. Uh, this is part of the U.S. problem right now, which is that uh, U.S. politicians think that military spending, even wars, because we've had many expensive wars in the last 20 years, is somehow good for the United States. But of course, it's not good for the United States. It's a mm. complete waste of money. And it's on the wrong track, in my opinion. Mm. We need diplomacy. We need arms control, uh, not this arms race. But this is uh, American politics right now. Mm. Professor Lee, what is your comment on this point? And we know that Japan and China are the two largest holders of U.S. treasuries, and they are at least willing to see that the U.S. would default. Is it a relief? Well, it is certainly a, a relief because China not only is a big uh, holder of U.S. treasury bill, but also China is a stakeholder of the mm. international financial system of which the U.S. still is at the center, let's face it. So, so I would say that a big sign of relief can be heard in China uh, with the passing of the, uh, the bill, uh, even though uh, for the time being, it is uh, only a temporary uh, solution, as Jeff just mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to resolve the issue, I fully agree with Jeff. Uh, fundamentally, the U.S. needs um, kind of a political, social political reform uh, in changing its uh, budgetary process. Mm. Okay, I often argue that, um, that uh, uh, somehow the U.S. budgetary process should take lessons from its central banking. Okay, in central banking more or less, overall, overall, I would argue, I mean, this might be controversial, overall, the U.S. Federal Reserve manages its monetary policy much better than the U.S. federal government managing its budget because the, the, the U.S. Fed is relatively independent of the federal government and relatively independent of politics. Uh, Professor Lee, what risks concern you the most for the world economy to remain on the recovering trajectory? Both the Chinese and the U.S. economies are huge, okay? Together, we account for 43% of the global economy, okay? So if both China and U.S. Uh, handle their domestic economic financial affairs properly, the world economy will be much better, okay? Now, how to do that? Very simple. The most important homework for the U.S. to do right now is to make sure its financial system uh, to to restore stability before long. Okay, the U.S. economy per se, frankly speaking, is still very strong. Job numbers are adding, innovation are still being made. Okay, however, the banking sector, the financial system, is not stable. So, do your homework. Make sure your financial system is stable, not only for uh, for, your, for the U.S. economy per se, but also for the rest of the world. Okay, second for China, make sure economic growth is um, maintained and uh, restored, the post-pandemic problems are resolved, the economic growth is maintained. I'm talking about um, uh, more than 5.3%. In my mind, I have a target of 5.3, 5.5%. So we have our homework to do in China. In my view, we need to 
uh, to stimulate consumption a little bit. We need to um, to stabilize the, the property market. We need also to resolve uh, part of this, uh, some of the local government's debt. These are the three arrows the Chinese economy needs to, uh, to shoot. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. For future economic trends, this is Biz Talk. Um, Professor Sachs, do you think reforms are necessary? And we know that the U.S. Congressional Budget Office projects interest payments may reach $600 billion this year and $1.4 trillion in 2033. What is your overall view on the sustainability of U.S. debt at this level? The Congressional Budget Office makes a forecast uh, for the next uh, 30 years. And so they make a forecast to the year uh, 2052, actually, most recently. And they show the debt rising to 185% of uh, the national income if we continue on the current policies. Why? Because people are getting older in the United States, so there's more uh, pension payments, uh, healthcare is expensive, and we don't have a political uh, consensus at all on how to address this. There was no discussion about the long term, none. Uh, and there was no serious attempt to look at a long term solution. Uh, this is the problem with the US politics right now at a deeper level. Uh, our political system, in my opinion, has become highly corrupt because of the big monetary contributions of billionaires and corporations. So those big campaign contributors say, give us tax cuts. And that's what Congress does. And then there's mm -hmm. not enough money to spend on uh, important uh, things like education or modernization of infrastructure. So the public suffers that way. But then the politicians uh, like war more than they like diplomacy, which is another failure of the American politics. So the end result is large budget deficits that don't really get solved. Uh, and we need a deeper understanding of this. We don't even have a public debate about it, much less a consensus. So this idea of looking for a real deeper understanding uh, is important. We don't have a long-term process in U.S. politics right now. Uh, and even though we have uh, agencies like the Congressional Budget Office, which give forecasts, that doesn't turn into practical politics. Mm. So, Professor Lee, you talked about uh, changes needed, but without meaningful reforms, how seriously do surging deficits and debt servicing costs threaten the economy going forward? Well, in my view, it's uh, more serious than most people uh, have realized. Why do I argue that? Uh, the reason is that there are many economies, such as the Chinese economy, the, um, the Indian economies, uh, which are emerging 
And with the emergence of such new economies, let's call them new market economies, um, they are also providing uh, financial securities or financial products such, their, such as their own treasury bill, their own uh, national sovereign debt, uh, which are becoming increasingly uh, possible to provide alternatives to the U.S. treasury bill. So, Professor Sachs, you, you mentioned uh, the uh, deadlock uh, in the U.S. politics. The uh, increasing political partisanship may have harmed the position of the United States in the world. As one of the uh, leading global de development economists, do you have any suggestions to how to find off-ramp from this? Well, uh, first of all, it's not really partisan politics because both political parties get the campaign contributions from the same corporations and the same rich donors. So a lot of what looks like rivalry between the Democrats and Republicans is more about personalities. Uh, both parties uh, actually respond to the same financial interests to a very large extent. It's very surprising because we talk about polarization, but it's not really polarization between the parties, it's between the rich and the poor. Uh, and uh, this isn't reflected in our politics very well. I think over time, the uh, role of China and India and uh, others in the world economy will grow and the relative role of the US dollar will decline. Uh, also, the American policymakers have been very destructive about the role of the dollar because they have used the dollar uh, in a very militarized way. For example, confiscating the foreign exchange reserves of Russia, $300 billion. I think this is completely uh, wrong. If you want other countries to use your currency, you don't yeah. confiscate uh, those reserves. So I think the US policymakers have made very big mistakes in. Uh, militarizing uh, uh, the dollar because the means of payments should not be politicized this way. It should be a technical operation. So I personally believe that the renminbi will play a much larger role in the future. I believe that uh, the uh, uh, rupee will play a larger role, the ruble <laughs> and others. And I think that's fine. It should be part of an evolutionary change in the international system. But I think it's a change in the right direction, actually. No one country uh, is going to dominate uh, the world economic or geopolitical system, uh, no matter what they think. It's going to be a multipolar system and a multi-currency system as well. Well, Professor Lee also mentioned that default of the U.S. dollar would be a, a catastrophic for the world economy. So in your opinion, what hedging strategies make sense for China going forward? Well, for China, the most important thing, I believe, is to uh, clearly, clearly communicate uh, China's intention, uh, long-term intention to uh, the U.S. counterparts, the U.S. scholars, U.S. policymakers, U.S. politicians, U.S. Uh, financial community, that China seeks to achieve international prosperity. Uh, rather than 
China's own prosperity at the, the expense of other countries' uh, economic prosperity. So the case in point is for China to coordinate closely uh, uh, on the issue of the internationalization of the RMB. Okay, so this is my maybe. So Jeff, I would like to hear your your feedback. You are, whether I'm, I, I'm too far away from U.S. reality. What happened in the United States, though, is that things got worse in two ways over the last 40 years. On the one hand, the role of campaign financing, which is a kind of corruption, became much more important. And this has really weakened the American political framework. And it's a series of deliberate actions that were taken that corrupted American politics. So this is something that needs to be addressed. The second thing that is absolutely also true is that governance became much more complicated. We have to think longer term. We have to make longer term plans. Uh, we don't have an NDRC. We don't have a National Development and Reform Commission like China that is a planning uh, agency. We don't have uh, any long-term plans in the United States, by and large, other than perhaps the Pentagon. But even that is not really long-term plan. So governance became more complicated, and the political system became more corrupted. This is a big problem. Uh, it's, it's mainly a US problem, but US problems can spill over to be whole global problems. We need to understand we're in a new era that we need to be a lot more serious about how we think ahead and a lot more honest about how we make decisions for the common good. This, I would say, is a, the major challenge facing the United States right now. Its political system needs upgrading, but it's going to remain somehow in the longer tradition uh, of uh, American political history, which actually dates even from British political history. So we're kind of a child of Britain. And so our budget framework is hundreds of years in the making, but it definitely needs retuning right now. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. For future economic trends, this is BizTalk. Well, Professor Sachs, um, let's talk a bit about China-U.S. relations because, you know, China is the big stakeholder in this. 
But despite rising geopolitical tensions, the Chinese and the U.S. economies remain closely interdependent. There are $700 billion of trade, and there are $250 billion of U.S. investment in China, and China is also the second largest holder of U.S. treasuries. But there is so much misunderstanding. There are even views in the U.S. that China may weaponize this holding of U.S. treasuries. Does it make any sense to you? Because the stability of U.S. financial markets is in the interest of China. All of this uh, uh, tension results, uh, in my view, from China's success. China's had remarkable 40 years of economic uh, development that's unprecedented uh, in how successful. But in the last 20 years, China became uh, very successful in high technology in a number of areas. And this is what caused panic even among uh, American strategists, not economists, by the way. The economists are pretty calm about this, uh, but it's uh, those that are in the Pentagon or in the security services. When you're a military strategist, you don't care about common prosperity, you care about who's number one, which is very dangerous perspective because then you're fighting against the success of someone else. And it came to American politics in the last 10 years that we need to fight against China's success. Well, that's a terrible idea, a very dangerous idea. But I know that some American strategists or politicians believe in it. I think they're fools, frankly, if I could use a very strong term, because it's absolutely reckless. And when we're trained as economists, we think win-win. But when you're a, a military strategist, you might think win-lose. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe we should be aiming for win-win solutions. So I'm hoping that cooler heads, less panicked people, more economists believing in win-win, fewer geopolitical strategists believing in win-lose uh, come to the fore. Professor Lee, what is your comment on this? Why do China and the U.S. have to be in this game of zero-sum? Yeah, uh, fully we agree with Professor Sachs' uh, analysis. Let me add one, I think, simple point uh, from, uh, from China. Uh, that is, I, I do believe that um, there is a task to be accomplished by, um, by uh, scholars like me who are fortunate to be educated both in China and in the West, in my case in particular in the U.S., okay? That is to explain to the American society at large and also in particular to, to, to ordinary people on the street that China is not a mirror image of the U.S. Today's China is not the emerging U.S. In, at the beginning of the uh, 20th, 20th century, okay? So when China does not, uh, has, does not have a history, has history of to become uh, hegemony, when China becomes, uh, becomes powerful, okay? China is not a country trying to impose its political, ideological uh, 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 belief system upon other countries. Partly because, partly because the Chinese political and the social political philosophies are, in my view, much more complicated to explain to uh, to other countries. So how can we expect other countries to to follow the Chinese system? 
It's very important. It's the right message. Americans cannot imagine China never had a empire abroad, never went for world right. empire, uh, never. Uh, China never invaded its neighbors the same way, yet never. Uh, I looked at 2,000 years of Chinese history. China never invaded Japan. But this is something Americans can't even understand because if you look at France and England, for example, and Britain, they invaded each other so many times over a thousand years, it was almost nonstop war. And so Americans can't understand China's statecraft unless they learn more about it and more of the history. Uh, and so your book will be very important for that. Professor Sachs, how difficult do you think it is to convey the message that China's rise is good for the U.S.? I think we need much more communication than we have right now, and it's very weird. It's, you know, it's so easy as we're talking right now. Uh, we can get online and have a good conversation, but how rare this is, actually. It's very surprising because we should have people in Des Moines, Iowa, meeting with people in Chongqing and having a nice conversation together. We should have uh, normal conversations between uh, Americans and Chinese uh, people, athletes or people in the arts or uh, academics as a very routine matter. Uh, our students should work together on projects uh, online in classrooms that are shared. Because this is the, the brilliance of, of the digital age, right. how much more we could communicate. But the communication is very low, surprisingly. And mm. we just hear, in my country, I hear stupid politicians that don't know anything about China telling us that China is the enemy. And I hear that all the time. And these are people that I don't know if they've ever been to China once, uh, but they are our politicians. And this, I think, is where the, the uh, paradox is that in an interconnected age, we don't have very many interconnections right now. And if we made more interconnections, not just business deals, but people-to-people -people understanding, this would be a huge benefit because then we could tell our politicians in my country, calm down, don't panic, stop. This isn't, China's not going to take over the world or take over the United States. You can calm down. And this, I think, would be extremely important. And that both the United States and China have enormous responsibility to uh, stabilize the world economy and promote recovery. Well, that's all the time we have today. Many thanks again to our esteemed guests, Professor Jeffrey Sachs from Columbia University and Professor Li Daokui from Tsinghua University. Thank but this you. timely discussion has Thank highlighted you. risks and policy imperatives that demand urgent action to place the U.S. and global debt levels on a sustainable footing and forging cooperation between the world's two largest economies will go a long way toward averting considerable threats to our economic and financial stability. And that would do it for this edition of BizTalk on CGTN. Thank you for being with us. Until next time, bye for now. Mm -hmm.